I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And our first reading is 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-two through 49. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. And then we'll go to Revelation. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Thank you, Paula. As you know, we're going through the Apostles' Creed. 
uh, inch by inch, clause by clause, phrase by phrase, and we are on, I believe, in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I mean, this is the Christian's hope. And I believe what you're hoping for and what you hope in drives everything about how you're gonna live your life. I mean, we have a lot of general hopes, don't we? Like, you know, I hope I have enough money to pay the bills. I hope for a good job. I hope for a husband. Hope for a wife. Uh, Hope for some political hero or political party. Hope for good health. Uh, None of these hopes are categorically wrong. They're general hopes. But if these general hopes become ultimate hope, you end up becoming a slave to these things and they dominate and control your life. General hopes can be misplaced if they become your ultimate hope. It's kind of like if you're driving down the road and your car engine light goes on, you know something is wrong. And the creed we've been walking through and this phrase You know, I believe in the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. It's the foundation of Christian hope, Christian courage, and really the ordering of Christian life. General hopes are good things, and you should never be rebuked for hoping in any of these things as long as they're not your ultimate hope, but they cannot be the engine that drives your life. No, there's an ultimate hope that drives our lives, and that's what I want to talk about today. So for the last 11 weeks, we've stood and we have recited this Apostles' Creed, this ancient confession of our faith together. We have joined the chorus of millions of Christians really around the world and across the millennia who have celebrated the Lord of the universe along with us. We say when we say the creed together that we are rejecting the popular narratives of the day. We are rejecting how the world would discipline us or disciple us, and we're saying my allegiance, our allegiance, is the triune God of the Bible. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And we have this week and next week, and then we're gonna be done with the creed and we're going to be done with 2020. Amen? Amen. And that's what I'm going to preach about next week. Just amen. Just that word. And it's going to be a real short sermon, I can imagine. Don't be cheering. Okay. So what I want to do uh, today is I want to take these two phrases and just shape very quickly kind of a biblical theology around them and then uh, make some applications, okay? So first... We have the resurrection of the body. I mean, look again at 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, don't misunderstand that spiritual body language there. He's not saying that you're a ghost, Okay? Rather, there's a physical body that's more like the resurrected body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a physical body. And if you were to go to Luke 24, uh, it's right, it's after Jesus rose from the dead and before he ascended into heaven, he appeared to his disciples. And like his disciples thought he was a ghost. (laughs) You know, I'll read it to you. 
Luke 24, 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. So the spiritual body is not a ghost. I mean, it's not like you're just floating around in the air after you die. You have a physical body. And if there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. In fact, even the Old Testament kind of hints at this. I mean, 1,500 years before Jesus Christ, good old Job said in Job chapter 19, 25 and 26, which made it into part of Handel's Messiah, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Wow. Resurrection of the body. When we're talking about uh, the Christian hope and the bodily resurrection, we're talking about you know, resurrection, not resuscitation. You know, does that make sense? We're talking about resurrection, not resuscitation. Let me tell you why it's such a big deal. I think there's coming a day, and I don't know where you are really on this spectrum of life, but there's coming a day when your body has like full on betrayed you, and you don't want to be alive anymore. And you certainly get frustrated almost every day that you wake up. For most of us, that's way off of our radar. We're either on the ascent or we're at cruising altitude or we just started to descend. But I tell you what, the Bible is really clear in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 12 that there's coming a day if we live long enough that we don't want to be here anymore. And we certainly don't want to come back. And Ecclesiastes 12 is this poetic description of getting older. Now you've heard all my getting older jokes, haven't you? Like you know you're getting older when your knees buckle and your belt doesn't. Can anybody identify with that? Or you know you're getting older when you get the dresser disease, your chest starts sinking into your drawers, right? Or you know you're getting older when you sink your teeth into a juicy steak and they just stay there. Just a couple more. You know you're getting older when the stewardess on the airplane says, do you want coffee, tea, or milk and magnesia? And then this one my wife really likes. It's, uh, you know you're getting older when you tell your wife her nylons are sagging. And she tells you that she's not wearing any. Ooh. Sorry, babe. That's not true. Anyway, Ecclesiastes 12. I want to run through a few verses of Ecclesiastes 12 because it's his poetic description of growing older. Verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 12. And Ecclesiastes, I think it comes right after Proverbs, right? Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. And the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. In other words, I have no pleasure being alive. And then verse two, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent or stoop and the grinders cease. 
I mean, we're reading poetry here. Your grinders are gone. I mean, that would be your teeth, right? And the keepers of your house, they tremble. Those are your hands, right? And you're not able to do things. In verse three, the strong men are bent, they stoop, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed. Well, it happened to me, I was about 45. You know, and I was trying to read something, I figured out I had to, I had to put it way out here in order to read it. My arms were not long enough, and so I got these bifocals, and now like Bill Cosby used to say, we're high-stepping all the time when we look down with these bifocals on, right? You know, things start to wear out. And then verse four, and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low, and when one rises at the sound of a bird. It's like, man, are you serious? It's like you're going to bed at 4.30 in the afternoon, and then you're waking up at two in the morning. I'm almost there. Uh, and then when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. In other words, they grow faint. You know, they can't hear very good anymore. And then verse five, they're afraid also of what is high and the terrors are in the way. In other words, the world starts moving kind of fast for them. You know, they're frightened and the almond tree blossoms. That means it's white. You know, you got a white head, white hair. And the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails. I'll let you figure out what that means. Desire fails. Because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about in the streets. Verse six, before the silver cord is snapped, that's your, that's your spine. Or the golden bowl is broken, that's your head. Or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was. The spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanities. You see, our hope is not in resuscitation. I don't want to come back to this failing body. And here's the kicker, like for Lazarus. Remember Jesus rose, you know, raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11? You know, he had to die again. You know, think of it. I mean, getting resurrected by Jesus, and that was a legitimate miracle, amazing. But then the guy had to still die again. It's like, oh no, not again right? He had to die again. He had to die twice. And we're not talking about resuscitation. We're talking about resurrection. I will not be raised from the grave in the power of Christ to a tweaked back and to aching knees and to grinding shoulders and to bad hips. I don't get resurrected into being tired, weak, slow, and weary, and fearful. I am not resuscitated. I am resurrected. You won't be resuscitated, you'll be resurrected. And that takes us really to the second part, to this life everlasting. But this is where our hopes lie. You know, I have hope in this ultimate hope that I will be bodily resurrected in a body that's not like this one. So all the kind of ailment this one can face, all the fear this one can face, it'll be gone. It's just going to be gone because it will be unable to be killed It will be unable to die because death will be dead. And this is where the Christian hope lies. Why in the world did the apostles die for the sake of the gospel? Why did they allow themselves to be persecuted for the sake of the gospel? Because they had this eternal hope that they will get a brand new body one day and they're gonna live forever in heaven. That's what gave them courage, this ultimate hope in Jesus Christ. Christ, what can man do to me? Our hope lies in Christ. 
And it's gonna be a physical resurrection. Because he lives, we can too. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And we order our lives based on this. I have eternity, and we're gonna get there, you know, life everlasting. And I, I am in a body that doesn't experience what this body experiences. And it's not gonna get afraid. And it's not gonna get sick. And I'm not gonna need Tums. And I'm not gonna need Advil. And I'm not gonna need like gummy vitamins anymore. It's over. And that brings us to everlasting life. And if you have your Bible, just flip over to what Paula read in Revelation uh, 21. We'll start at verse one. I just wanna reread that. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21, verse one. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Verse two. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. In verse four, he'll wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And verse five, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new, all things new. And also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then verse six, he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And then verse seven, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. I am physically resurrected in bodily form to life everlasting. This is a truth that Christians have always believed. We believe right now and we will always believe. And the thrust of Revelation 21 is that my soul and my body and this holistic picture of me is now where it was meant to be. And that's not just in New Jerusalem, but it's with God. You know, I am with God and he is with me. And in a sense, you know, when you have Christ in your life, you have eternal life right now. You don't have to wait. It begins right now when you have Christ because he is life. He is eternal life. But there's a sense where it's coming to this eternal life. And it's not just a hope anymore when we get there. It's... He's there, and this eternal life will be fully realized. It will be fully experienced. Hope will be realized, and here's what everlasting life looks like. Look at verse four. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. That's everlasting life. No more funerals, you guys. Uh Uh-uh. No more funerals. No more breaking news. Death is over. Death is done. The apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? There are no more tears because death shall be no more. And then keep reading in verse four. Neither shall there be mourning. I mean, you can mourn things, other things besides death, like, you know, any kind of a loss, loss of a job, uh, loss of a relationship, uh, loss of opportunity. Yeah, we mourn things. We mourn loss. And I think it's a right thing to mourn. And I think the Bible gives us permission to grieve and to mourn. In fact, there are a few things more ungodly than fake joy when you should be mourning. We've been given permission to mourn, and Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, 
Chapter four, verse 13. We grieve, but not like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe Jesus died and rose again. In fact, in this world, this I call the Genesis three world, it's supposed to happen. You're allowed to mourn, but on that day, on that coming day, there won't be any mourning. And you know what everlasting life looks like? There will be no more mourning. There will be nothing to go, you know, like, oh man, that hurt. There just won't be anything to mourn. And then, you know, uh, the next phrase in verse four, no crying or no pain. Have you ever had a loved one in pain? Have you ever been in pain yourself and really not be able to do anything about it? I mean, it's an awful thing. And do you know what everlasting life looks like? No pain. No crying. Let's keep going. Verse four, the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Do you know what everlasting life looks like? I mean, let's talk for a second here. I get kind of giddy about this. I mean, how many of you have been marked by a tragedy? You have like a specific event that has kind of shaped your life in a way that you're still trying to work through it. And you're still trying to bounce back from it. Is there anybody here who would be bold enough to say there are some dark things that have occurred in my life and I'm still trying to recover from them? Former things have passed away. Some of you have buried a child. It's pretty tough. Maybe a husband went out fishing and never came home. Maybe you laid a baby down for a nap and the baby didn't wake up. Maybe you've gone through a divorce, a devastating divorce. Wasn't supposed to happen. Maybe some of you had an abortion that's still haunting you. Maybe uh, there was a cancer that just destroyed and ravaged someone's life. Some of you have been abused. You know, lots of abuse, either verbally, um, mentally, physically, sexually abused. All these things, they leave marks on us. And I know if anyone's in Christ, he's a brand new creature. But Christians still struggle. And you know what everlasting life looks like? Those are all gone. The former things have passed away. They're gone. The former things are gone. And with everlasting life, I don't have to fight anymore. I don't have to struggle anymore. I don't have to war against those wounds of my flesh. Everlasting life doesn't look like that. I am free. I am finally and forever free. That's everlasting life. No energy, no vitality, No haunting memories to work through or to figure out or try to forget. It's just over. It's everlasting life. The former things have passed away. Let's keep going in verse five. It says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then verse six, he said to me, and listen to this, it is done. You know, I love the feeling of being able to say, you know, about some kind of a project, you know, hey, it's done. You know, hey, Mary, look at this. I mowed the grass. It's done. Look at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's done. And uh, 
And this is what Jesus is saying. It's done. He said it from the cross, right? It's finished. It's all done. The work of salvation, it is finished. It's done. And if we had time to cross-reference some scripture, one might be what Jesus said when he said, you know, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come on in to the reward because it's done. It's over. Uh, The wrestle, the fight, it's over. Come on in forever. You know, a resurrected body for life everlasting. That is our hope. Now I just want to share a a few uh, applications before we quit. Application number one, rely on ultimate hope, not on misplaced hope. You know, some of us, some of us who, who love Jesus, who claim Jesus, are putting undue hope on things that can't deliver and that has led us into like anxiety and restlessness and fear. We need to be honest about that. And we've begun to manipulate and, and try to control relationships and situations in our lives. And, and we're not relying on the Lord. We're, we're relying on us. And that check engine light of anxiety and restlessness falling back into sinful patterns, trying to manipulate, trying to control, flying off into a rage, you know, getting frustrated and you're not really sure why. That's the check engine light, guys. And if you dig, if you just stop, you know, what are you putting your hope in? All this frantic activity? What have you placed your hope in? What is driving your life right now? Is it a good hope that's misplaced or is it the ultimate hope? Application number two, we need to view our lives from an eternal perspective. Some of us need to take a bit of a, like a disciplined time out and start viewing our lives today from, from 10,000 years from now. You know, looking back, and you've been there on the day where you feel like overwhelmed, you feel like you're done, and you question sometimes the goodness of God, and you wonder if he's going to make real on his promises, and you know, has anybody been there? You know, when that happens, I think sometimes we need to help our hearts out and even use our imagination, not for sinfulness, but for righteousness, and think of the worst day of your life. Think of that. Think of some disappointment that you've had. Think of a discouragement that you've had. Think of a disease, a disaster, death, some darkness. It's kind of like the old warriors do after they survive a nasty battle, you know, and, uh, and then they get back together kind of like the old army guys, you know, the army buddies. They say, oh gosh, man, that was quite a, quite a battle we had. Remember that we were surrounded and we didn't think we were going to get out of there and then, then you got shot in the leg and, and that was just crazy, And then 10 years later, they're rejoicing in the fact that they survived. It's kind of like canoe camps for me. Me and my brother, we used to get people from our churches and go canoe camps. And I always say they were dirty, rotten, horrible, miserable, wonderful times. 10,000 years from now, I didn't just survive. We thrived. And we see how God used difficulty and trials, and tribulations, and 2020 to shape us and to expose the check engine light of our misplaced hopes to refine us and to rescue us and to turn us more and more and more into what he designed us to be. Amen? Yeah. That's how God works. 
Application number three, there's a physical bodily resurrection. Look at me, you will never be an angel. (laughs) You won't, you know. When it comes time for you to go to a funeral or give some eulogy at a funeral or do something like that, please don't say that they're an angel now. I don't care if the bell rang in the Christmas tree. It's just not true. They're not angels. Angels wish they were us. And that's what the Bible says. The book of Hebrews says that angels look upon our salvation and they go, man, that's awesome. They want to be us. We shouldn't want to be them. Praise God for the angels. It's a reality of the angelic world, of course. They're instruments of God, you know, God's hand to to press back what's dark and to lift oppression and to destroy the work of the enemy. But God has bigger things in store for you and for me. And we're not angels. And then look at me again. You're not ghosts. You're not a ghost. You won't be a ghost. As much as I want to, uh, you will never haunt anyone. (laughs) You don't get to. You don't get to haunt anybody. You know, I've used some of my like unsanctified imagination to imagine haunting some folk if I died. But the Lord has something better for me than that, and he has something better for you. There is a physical, bodily resurrection, and you and I will live forever. And with that kind of clarity, how does that shape our relationships? Application number four. You know, this ultimate hope of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, it drives us to kindness. It drives us to compassion. It makes us have an awareness that drives us to kindness and compassion because we know all of us are eternal beings. So here's how C.S. Lewis put it. I want to quote C.S. Lewis here. And here's a quote from him. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn or somber. We must play, but our merriment must be of the kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption, end of quote. So listen, Calvary. We are a community of people who are immortal. Think about that. We are gonna live forever in heaven or in hell. And Lewis's argument is that the United States of America is not immortal. In fact, compared to us, it's a gnat. Institutions, the arts, the Mona Lisa, compared to you and me, is a gnat because it's not immortal. We are immortal. And that shapes how we see our friendships, our relationships, our community. Whether you're a Christian or not, you're immortal, which leads to application number five. Since we are eternal creatures, then we take sin seriously. And we trust in Jesus alone. We take serious the eternality of our souls. Christian or non-Christian, because this is true, we must be very, according to Lewis, sullen and serious about the fact that we're eternal. An awareness of our eternality. You know, we need to be sober-minded. And in the end here, 
Our awareness is gonna help us take sin more seriously. I mean, if the doctor told you you had two years left to live, I mean, that, that would change your life. You know, never so serious about sin as when the doctor tells you you have two years left to live. Never so serious about sin. And you'll never have an easier time walking away from your flesh than when you think standing in front of Jesus is actually imminent. I mean, you never know. When you realize and dwell on and you think about the eternality of the soul, you're serious about sin. And you begin to order your life because of where your hope is placed. And the engine that begins to drive the activity of your life is now no longer misplaced hope, but it's a rightly placed uh, ultimate hope in what Christ has done for us on the cross. So we take sin seriously. We trust alone in what Jesus Christ has done. And then application number six. We also see people or others through this like lens of eternality, okay? It also helps us take seriously the eternality of the souls of others. And that means You know, think about this. The Christian brother or sister of mine who kind of grates against not just my nerves, but my last nerve, I see them. I see them through the lens or the lenses of their immortal souls. I see people through the lens of eternity. And I wonder then how their past experiences and their highs and their lows and their wounds have shaped them and affected them. And I extend more grace to them knowing that they will be with me worshiping Jesus forever. So get used to it. (laughs) Right? Right, yeah. I feel a burden for my neighbor. A burden for my coworker. A burden for my friend who wants nothing to do with Jesus, which leads to application number seven. I get serious about the people who don't know Jesus. This ultimate hope, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting, it creates a seriousness about people and about the people that I come across. It creates a seriousness in my prayers and desires to see Jesus save Remember I said a little earlier that this truth, everlasting life, is the foundation for Christian courage. Because if eternity is real for the Christian and for the non-Christian, then I'm really serious about those who don't know Jesus. I'm really serious about that because a lot is at stake. And so, you know what? I'm gonna swallow my cowardice and I'm gonna walk in courage in the courage of knowing that eternity is real. I'm not gonna balk at being misunderstood or being made fun of, and we're gonna start reaching out, and it may not be on a mission trip across the world. It might be a mission trip across the street, and we're gonna be courageous, and we are gonna share the gospel, and we're gonna have people come into our homes, or we're gonna invite them to church with us. We're gonna pour into, we're gonna counsel ourselves with eternity and counsel others In the light of eternity, I just want to end with two questions before we quit. The first one, where are you placing your ultimate hope? As you think of uh, the kind of like a frantic pace of your life, what's driving you? What's the engine that's moving your car? What are you actually hoping in? 
What's driving you at work or what's driving you at home or what's driving you to gain or to get that thing your heart is consumed with and what are you really driven by? I mean, that's a tricky question and I think it's one that takes some serious thought and some serious like contemplation and so think about it. You're probably not gonna answer it all today but ponder that one. What are you placing your ultimate hope in? Are those places leading to anxiety and control and fear and anger? Calvary, that's the check engine light. Something's wrong under the hood. Misplaced hope, where is it? Where have you misplaced hope if the engine is rattling? Second question before we end is, in what ways have you shown lack of concern for the eternality of your own soul. You know, do you take sin lightly? I mean, have you categorized things God says he hates as no real big deal in your life? You say, well, what, what in the world does God hate? God loves everything, right? God hates a lot of things, and here's just six of them. They list real plain, black and white, in Proverbs chap- chapter six. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among his brothers. And then you gotta think about, you know, what about the souls of others? I mean, is there any urgency in your heart? Is there any urgency in your mind or your life at all for those who are outside of the saving grace of Jesus? Are you like burdened to pray? I mean, does cowardice mark your walk outside of these walls far more than the Christian courage does? You know, I'm not trying to do drive-by shooting here or drive-by guilting. (laughs) But I'm trying to get you to dig around in your heart and see what's going on in there. Listen, the reason we don't like to ask these kinds of questions is because we know the answers, right? And it's ugly in there. The heart is deceitful above all things. It really is. And most of us are cowards. And most of us don't think in the light of eternity. And most of us can't get out of the here and now. Gosh, most of you are having a hard time not thinking too hard about the Bears-Vikings game today. I'm thinking about it. Yet you and I, listen, we're caught up in something that it doesn't have a beginning. It doesn't have an ending. And we are invited to play a role in this gospel and to live in the light of eternity. Those are my questions for you. Where are you placing your ultimate hope And if you walk in anxiety, if you walk in control, if you walk in fear, what might that be revealing about where your hopes are? And in what ways do you show lack of concern about the eternality of your own soul and the souls of others? So let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you and praise you for the coming resurrection. Jesus, we know that if we have you, we have life right now, but there is coming a day when we will be changed. The perishable shall put on the imperishable. 
There's a day coming when our bodies don't hurt, where we don't cry, where the fight to forgive, the fight to heal, the wrestle over doubt all gives way and we get to rest in that final. It's done. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us some insight you know, as to where is our ultimate hope? Where have we placed our ultimate hope? Spirit, it's so easy to get lost in ourselves. Would you bring clarity to us today? And Father, where there are those around us who either because of lack of courage or lack of thinking well, you know, we have not engaged with the good news of the gospel. You know, we have not prayed for them. We have not invited them into our homes for dinner Uh, into our church, into our small groups, or into a conversation about you, will you convict our hearts, God? Will you prick our souls with the weight of eternity? Stamp eternity on our eyeballs. Help us now, Lord, as we confess and consider your goodness and grace to us in Jesus. We thank you, even in the ugliness of our hearts, Lord, that you love us anyway. And you love us. Your love for us has not wavered even in our foolishness. And we just say, we love you. Help us to rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen. I hear these words from 1 John. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. So walk out of here in the fullness of life if you have it. If not, you should get it. Amen? Amen.